on a vacation in the ground all around in heaven? All kinds of theories about that question. What a great question, huh? Just to, to spark conversation and to kind of uh, get the, the matter going on spiritual matters. You can kind of find out where someone's at in their spiritual uh, beliefs with that question. Where, where is Jesus today? And that's what we're going to look at. Jesus repeatedly told his disciples that he would be returning to where he came from. And that was from the Father. And one reference of that is John 16, 28. He said those exact words. We won't even read them. Philip Yancey, uh, in, in a book, wrote this. And it was, it was rightly observed that by leaving, Jesus ran the risk of being forgotten. Now, here's the thing. Is Jesus forgotten today? Absolutely not. Now, as a Christian, I would say, yeah, he's forgotten in a lot of the ways that he should be remembered. But Jesus isn't having a, uh, a crisis of the fact that no one knows who he is and, and, and all of that. They may have a, a crisis understanding what he's about. Um, but every so often we get, uh, we get these things where there's kind of Jesus sightings. And, um, and people, you know, people find Jesus in things. This is evidently Jesus in a fish stick. Uh, this is another one. Uh, this is hard to see, but if you look closely, this is Jesus in a Kit Kat where someone took a bite and thought they saw the face of Jesus. Um, and then here, is, uh, here it is kind of on a, on a wall that supposedly, that looks like a chalk drawing to me, but someone said, you know, hey, we found uh, a smudge of Jesus. Um, he's evidently not bound by old school things. Uh, this is him on an iPhone. Uh, they, someone found a network, Jesus saves your life, so he's showing up on iPhones. Um, that was a little bit like Charlton Heston to me in later years, but... <laughs> That's evidently Jesus showed up on toast and he's at the beach. Now, um, when Jesus said, I'm coming again, this is not what he meant. Amen? I mean, when Jesus comes again, it will be unmistakable that it's him. He's going to come back as a returning victorious warrior. You can read about this in Revelation 19. But he's going to come on a white horse with an army of people on white horses behind him. He's going to have eyes of fire, a crown on his head, a robe that's dipped in blood, a sword coming out of his mouth, and a tattoo that on his leg says, King of kings and Lord of lords. That's how Jesus is going to return. Not on a fish stick. Not as a sand sculpture. So when people run to these things, the media loves to do this because it makes, it makes those who, who are followers of Jesus look like loony bins. When really it's just the person eating the Kit Kat that's the, that's the, the loony bin, right? Trying to say that, that he showed up in my candy bar. So where is Jesus today? Uh, on, your, on your cover you have three images. And these are three images that I think as Christians we throw around, we say sometimes... Um, and, in, and in part, I'd say they're all right. We actually heard, I think, all of these on the video. Here's one of them. He's in my heart. He's in heaven. He's kind of in the whole world. He's all around us. We kind of heard all three of those answers to some variation in, uh, in the video. Can we know where Jesus is? Maybe a follow-up question would be, what does it matter? Like, what does it really matter where he is today? We know what he did. We talk a lot about what he did 2,000 years ago. Does it really matter, like, today, where Jesus is? And then finally, is it just a matter of opinion? Now, someone could ask today, where is Scott Ordway? And people could have all kinds of opinions about that. I can give empirical proof that he's here, because he's right in front of my face. Sometimes people just say, well, it's a matter of opinion. Well, that doesn't work with other people, does it? Your teen comes home, well, that's really a matter of opinion. I mean, you know, some say I was here, and some, it doesn't really matter. Well, it does matter. 
And Jesus is a real person, and it does matter where he is today, and we don't settle for that idea of it's just a matter of opinion. Uh, we're going we're gonna to start in the, in the text today at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20. If you have your Bible, follow along. If you need a Bible, raise your hand if there's not one in the seat in front of you. And it says this, starting in verse 20. Uh, according to his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. I've got to tell you, I, I just could not wait to share what I've been studying in this passage this week. And as the clock would have it, I had to wait one bonus hour. I mean, go figure. It's just, it's been brutal. I am excited about what, uh, what God has for us this morning. Let's pray. Jesus, we address you this morning as one uh, who is on a throne. And God, we are, are pleased to sing to you this morning and to give you homage and to, to express and call back to you your greatness Spirit, we recognize that you're here in this place. We recognize that you seal believers, that you confirm truth in the hearts of those that you've called to your own, and that you're active and working in this place this morning. We just want to yield to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. What is your mental image of Jesus that you have? Here's what's interesting. As we talk about people or things or objects or a car, a mental image comes to mind of what we're talking about. And here's what I would toss out to you this morning, that your mental image of Jesus is vastly important, that as you pray, as you think, as you read about Jesus, uh, that it it becomes vastly important what comes to mind as you're thinking about him. One commentary said that nowhere else in the New Testament is there a more glorious picture of of the exalted Jesus than right here in Ephesians chapter 1. The book of Revelation might be a close second in my opinion. There's a lot of amazing pictures about what Christ is like and this mental image that we form. We had a picture, this upper right-hand picture, we had something similar to that hanging over our fireplace growing up. And growing up in church every other week, which was my experience, I got little pictures of Jesus and who he was, and I colored him a million times at church. And I cut him out a bunch. And, I, and he did the stories. But praise God, it's, it's been an expanding vision of who this Jesus is as I read the scriptures. And as, I, and as I discover who he is, and I say, God, reveal yourself to me. We meet the ascended Jesus in Ephesians chapter 1. Jesus was a carpenter. Jesus was a son He was a a companion to some disciples. He was a rabbi, and he went teaching as he went. He was human in all ways, but not now. Jesus was a healer, showing compassion to the fringes and the princes alike, but he was limited by time and space for a season, but not now. Jesus was a selfless, suffering servant hanging on a cross, but not now. And then Jesus rose from the grave and began making appearances to people, physical appearances to people, showing them his scars, the evidence of his, of his bodily death. But not now. Jesus bodily ascended in the book of Acts. We read about it. 
Now, seeing Jesus in his place allows you and I to rest easy in our place. Let me say that again, because this is the crux of the matter here. Seeing Jesus in his place allows us to rest easy in our place. That's why, that's why I believe that, that this passage is in here for us. I'm going to run through some things that you're welcome to follow along if you'd like. But in answering the question of where Jesus is, you could answer it this way, and this would be accurate. He's sitting at the right hand of God the Father. Verse 20, he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Many of you know this because you're theologians and scholars and you study the word, and that's a fantastic thing. But the right hand uh, of the Father, the right hand has always been significant in Scripture of the place of righteousness, the place of might, the place of honor. When the high priest at your Caiaphas uh, was questioning Jesus in Matthew 26, he said, tell us plainly if you are the Christ. Are you the Messiah? Are you this promised one sent to God to save a nation? Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you, catch this, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. He spoke of it almost as if it was already happening, because that was the age that he was ushering in. Colossians 3.1, we just sang about this in the song Center, which always calls to mind our Colossians series. If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above where Christ is, present tense, seated at the right hand of God. Not only is he sitting at the right hand of the Father, but Jesus Christ is sitting on a throne right now. That when we mention the name Jesus, when we pray to Jesus, when we sing about Jesus, when we call out to Jesus in hope, we're calling out to a being who's sitting on a throne. What's he doing up there? He's ruling and reigning as sovereign king and Lord. Never again will Jesus be subject to the humiliation that he endured while he was on a rescue mission for you and I. Jesus rules all. Let me just show you some of this from the text because it's so powerful. Here's another way of stating Jesus rules all. If you're, if you're uh, used to Christianese, you're used to terminology, what happens is certain things can kind of roll off the tongue without thinking about it too much. Jesus rules all. And you don't really stop and think about what that means. What does all mean? I mean, here's, a, here's another way of saying it. Nothing is not under the reign. There's a double negative. Nothing is not under the reign of Jesus. That's just a different way of saying Jesus rules all. But Jesus rules all can become familiar. Nothing is not under the reign of Jesus. That's a powerful idea. Listen to the scope. Not now, by the way, or ever. Already we've seen in, in Ephesians uh, chapter 1, in verse 10, that part of God's plan, God's plan is to unite, catch this, all things. That's a big scope. We've already looked at that some, on some level. We've already seen, too, that he works all things after the counsel of his will. That's found in chapter 1, verse 11 of Ephesians. The scope of, Elysian, of Ephesians, we said this early on, is massive. Now listen to this one more time with the idea that, that Jesus rules all. All things, okay? Here it is. He's far above. I love that. He's not just above. He's far above. Here it is. All rule and authority and power and dominion. Above every name that is named. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, to the fullness of him who fills all in all. 
What gets you hated as a Christian is the exact same things that got the martyrs that I read about in the Fox's Book of Martyrs killed. And by the way, that happens today. Christians are being killed because of this uh, assertion that they put forth. They read that the Bible unashamedly and repeatedly puts forth that Jesus is not just the Lord of my heart, but everyone's heart. He's not just the Lord and the, and the truth of my belief system and my church, but every belief system and every church. That Jesus is not uh, uh, just, just ruling in, in my world because I say it so, but that he's ruling all of the world and all will come under, under his subjection. That's what gets you hated as a Christian. You name the name of Christ and allow for everyone else to name what's, what's there. And that, that goes really, really well right now. Does it not? Don't we experience this in everyday life? But the second that you, that you put forth, that, that, no, there's, there's one way to the Father. And that's set up by one plan that's in effect, not multiple plans in effect. And we all generally arrive at the same place. That's where people will turn on you. They just will. Test me on this. Try it this week. Begin to narrow the focus. It comes off as intolerant, doesn't it? it? Comes off as unaccepting. It comes off as quite arrogant and prideful. And you will be hated if you preach the message that got Jesus Christ, this lowly, humble servant that we see in physical human forms in the gospel, it got him killed. As soon as Jesus Christ says, Plainly, it is as you say, I am the Christ. He began to be struck and belittled as blasphemy because he put himself out to be equal with God. I've got these in your notes because they're so powerful. Matthew 11, all things have been handed over to me by the Father. John 3, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Colossians has a parallel passage in some ways that he is before all things and in him all things hold together and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent, which is a fancy word, kids, for first place. That Christ would just be first place in everything. Your checkbook, your career decisions. Your actions, your thought life, what you sing about, what you journal about, what you draw about. That Christ would have first place in all of that. Now, the Bible, if that isn't true, if if what we're reading is not true, then the Bible is lying and should not be followed. You certainly shouldn't build it as a foundation on which to build your life if the Bible's wrong on this point. But if we've settled for ourselves to say that the Bible is in fact God's word and it's infallible, meaning that it's without error, then these words land heavy even to one like myself who spent most Sundays of my life in church hearing from God. Because the word all, while being three letters long, is a huge word. Here's what else Jesus is doing on a throne. He's being glorified. Jesus Christ, the name that is above every other name. Here's a quick quiz. Ready? In Jesus' name we pray. What's the next line? Amen. Amen. For those who are you know, without God, uh, they might say, uh, let's eat. You know, if they're not used to it, they don't know. There's a pause. If you're, you know, if you're with a family and you're not well-versed, you might say, let's eat. 
Uh, for those who are big baseball fans, it might be play ball. But we know, kind of like those who were raised on this, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. It just became kind of this normal thing. And for me that meant we're about to eat a meal usually. Ever wonder why we pray in the name of Jesus? We say it a lot. I just said it. In the name of Jesus we pray. And then all God's people will resound, amen. Yeah, we agree with that. We, we support that. Why do we pray in the name of Jesus? It's because it's above every other name that is named. In this age and in the one to come. That means forever. It's the highest name that we can call on. Now, names are important. And those of you who have had children, you would agree to this. You'd say, yeah, we, we wrestled back and forth with names. But in the Old Testament, names were actually even more important. And people, people really saw it as, as embodying the character of that person. I've put on the screen here uh, just about a quarter of the names that I found that Jesus is called in the Bible. And these are just the good ones. He was called some bad names, too. I didn't even write those down. But I couldn't even fit it on about ten slides if I put them all up there so you could read it. But he's named all these different names. But the one that we know him most by is Jesus Christ. Let me just expound on that a tiny bit. Jesus, the name Jesus means Yahweh or God, the one God saves. That's what Jesus means. God saves. And Christ, rather than being a last name like we would say Timmy Nichols or something like that, uh, Christ is a title. Is it not? Jesus the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and Christ means the anointed one, or the promised one, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And in the Old Testament, a person's name represented their character. Let me read from Psalm 23.3, some of you could follow along with this. He restores my soul, he leads me in the paths of righteousness, what? For his name's sake. In Jesus' name we pray, we see in the Old Testament that the name of God is preeminent. It's, it's, it's of importance. I'm not going to go too deep into this, but I wrote down in your notes Ezekiel 36. Let me give you the highlights, the cliff notes of this. Great passage to pray through. A group of Willow Glen pastors uh, met in our building this week just to come together and pray. We enjoyed a meal together, and then we just prayed for this city. We said, God wants us on our knees. We can't do what needs to be done in this city. I'd encourage you to, to join in that effort. But as we're praying, we're praying through Ezekiel 36, and it says this in Ezekiel 36, 21. He raises up this prophet, Ezekiel, and it says, But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations. God has concern for his holy name. And when it's profaned among the nations, he takes actions. Verse 23, skipping down, it says this, And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Now let me just say this. The, the esteeming of the name of God the honoring of the name of God, the raising up of Jesus is always redemptive. We, we put on our sinful human flesh around that and we say that's egotistical. That's glory mongering. None of us like that player on the team who's doing that. Showboating. But, but like all things with, a, with an all-powerful loving God, the raising up of Jesus, the raising up of God saves, isn't that the most loving thing you could do? 
That's why he's concerned about his holy name. And when his people profane his name, he takes actions on that. Can we just start to identify with that as a church? Can we start to internalize that a little bit and walk in a little bit of fear of the one that we pray to? How about as a family? Not to let, in Jesus' name we pray, just become a little caption that we say at the end of a prayer. How about in our lives to say, Lord, far be it from us to ever let something in our lives be dragging your name through the mud and the gutter. God, keep us from that. We don't want to profane your holy name. We want to be a people that raises up the holy name of God. The Father's character is fully revealed in the Son. John 17, 11, I think I have it in your notes, but it says this, And I am no longer Jesus talking to his disciples. He prays for his disciples here. He says, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, talking about his disciples, and I, Jesus, am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name. Which you gave, which you have given to me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And then in Philippians 2, another amazing passage talking about Jesus. It's just gone through the fact that, that, uh, that he's responded to God and been obedient to, to God to the point of death on our behalf. And then Philippians 2 9 picks it up and says this Therefore, God has highly exalted him, talking about Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let me make a guess uh, right now about something. I have, I have a hunch that while what we've tried to do uh, week after week, which is to, to really pray and say, God, we want to... We want to usher your people. We want to usher seekers who don't know you yet. We want, to, we want to usher in those who have been profaning you up to this day into the throne room of God on a Sunday morning. As we come together, whether it's the atmosphere or the music or whatever goes on, that's what we want to do. That's our prayer. And we've just had a text this morning that has ushered us into the throne room of God. But my hunch is this, that... that that if we're honest, and we, we promote honesty here at this church, let's just not put up airs. If we're really honest, there's some in this room, and I wrestled with this this week, with this question of why does this matter? And if we're really honest, we say, I know that it should, and, and it does. On my good moments, really, it totally does. In church on a Sunday, it does. But I've got all kinds of life issues going on right now. I know this should matter, but, but truth be told, I, I kind of know that and I, I feel like I'm just in this other place and I'm not really entirely sure why it matters for me today in my situation, in my circumstance, with these people in my life and in my faith. Let me put this out to you, that this matters, meaning all that we've talked about so far about Jesus being on the throne, this matters because of where you are today in those difficult situations. You are not on a throne. You are not in glory. Here's the biggest one. You're not in control. The plan you keep trying to work messes up. Sometimes it's because it was a bad plan. 
Sometimes other people don't seem to get on board with your plan. Anyone else find that true? Yeah, you have friends and family too. And so you're not in control. And so, and so you realize, wow, I'm glad Jesus is. You are in a struggle. You are pained by the fall. You are in a humble state of need today. But, and there's incredible hope in this, but you are receiving every spiritual blessing, Ephesians 1.3. You are adopted into God's family and have an inheritance, Ephesians 1.5. You are completely forgiven and free, Ephesians 1.7. You are the object of His immeasurable great power that is mightily working, Ephesians 1.19. And you are under the authority, protection, and care of the King of Kings, verses 22 of chapter 1. Now, how can you know this? You say, well, I don't know if I'm those things. I'm not going to get into it, but I wrote a little thing on universalism in, in a little text box about verse 19. This power that God works is toward us who believe. If you are in Christ, a believer then what I just read from Ephesians chapter 1 is true of you. We're not going to take time to dive into that, but read up on it. So if all those spiritual blessings are true in Ephesians chapter 1, why do we still struggle? Why do we still doubt? Why do you and I still kind of wander from things? Here's why. Ready? Struggle comes when we focus on me instead of he. Struggle comes when we focus on me instead of he. What does Paul want his friends to know? I mean, really we're in this section from about 15 on at the end of the chapter here where Paul is praying a prayer of revelation for his people. He says, friends and family, I want you to know three things. I want you to know the hope that you have. I want you to know the inheritance that you already possess, the riches in God that you already possess. And I want you to know this power that's at work in you. And in this chapter, if you could read it with me, uh, we would take the time, but you'll have to uh, uh, take my word for it. You can count later. But in my translation, English Standard Version, uh, he, his, or him show up 15 times just in these eight verses. Where's the focus? It's on he, not me. Me leads, me-centric living. This leads to anxiety. Fear, struggle, tension. Anyone experienced some of that this week? Here's what, here's what he's centric. Center, we just sang this. Fix your eyes on the author and perfecter of your faith. Peter, you're sinking. Look at Jesus. That's what the command was. That's what the, the instruction was. Focusing on the exalted Jesus gives peace and safety and rest and security and wonder and anticipation. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Does the ascended Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father on His throne affect my decisions today? You bet in every way, shape, or form, and far more than I could possibly communicate to you or grasp myself. And when we struggle, when we wander, when we wonder, it's because we're like Peter, looking at waves. Help, Lord. 
There's all different kinds of power. And from cell phones to politics, which is on our minds this week, uh, everyone tends to want more power. We all want more power. I want more horsepower. I want more computer processing power. Uh, I just want more power. Uh, my, my friend Chi, where's, is Chi around? Chi's in the back. Chi's in the back serving. No? There he is. Chi sent some pictures. I love these because I saw some of this go on in China. But the Chinese people are a powerful people. Power comes, by the way, in all different kinds of, of forms and whatnot. And um, I didn't quite see all of this, but I saw some of this. Um, the power to take an eight-seating minivan, sell it, put your whole family on a scooter. I mean, that's power. <laughs> Count them. There's eight there. That's power. Um, the power to take your mattress business on a scooter. That's, that's a certain kind of power. This guy, I think those are recycling things. Um, you know, that's the ultimate recycler there on a bike. Uh, the power to use your head in all situations. Uh, he doesn't need a basket or he's got them filled up. Um, the power that uh, you don't really need all the slats in a bridge. Uh, even while carrying a child. Do you see this front person? <laughs> They're like big heavy basket on the back. Child, no worries. I've got another arm. Uh, and when the bridge goes out and you've got your bike, no worries. We just, we just get across as it is. The power to drive a bus without a steering wheel. Um, and then when you're doing all that transportation, you need to rest. So the power to sit on two bottles, which is phenomenal, and, uh, and then balance on a chain. Here's the point. Power shows up in different ways, doesn't it? If you, could, if you could somehow put a measurement on this, okay, and say, okay, how much power? What if we had like kind of a power made, uh, uh, meter that could measure this? How much power does it take to make a difference? You know what I know about young people? Young people want to make a difference. Don't, don't believe everything you see on the news and read about. This isn't a hopeless generation. This is a, this is a generation that wants to make a difference. How much power does it take to really make a difference? How much power does it make... Uh, does it take to change a city? Let's bring it a little bit closer. How much power does it take to overcome and battle temptation? I mean, on the, on, the, on the reading, where would that fit? How would that read? How much power does it take not to worry over a friend who's in the hospital right now? How much power does it take to make the right decision? Just a simple right decision. What we're being told in Ephesians chapter 1 here is this. That the same power that rose Jesus from the grave as the firstborn among many to rise from from death and conquer death. And the same power that allowed him and caused him to ascend right before a crowd of people is the same power that mightily works in you and die. That ought to be so comforting. That ought to change the way that we pray and communicate and talk back to God. It ought to change what we ask for. Verse 19, and what is and, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might. It's almost like Paul can't spit the words out fast enough. Power, might, it's working mightily. I I have to just communicate this to you. Some of you were uh, busy recently watching a sporting event. Go on. And it was one of the most fun Octobers in baseball for me in a long time. 
Because instead of napping, I cared about the team that was playing. And the way these guys played the game, the way these games unfolded, come on, what was it called? Torture. Sweet torture. I just came across this recently, but I was invited as a pastor to gather my church to go to, um, I think they call it Fellowship Day, out at, uh, out at AT&T Ballpark. And that's where um, the, the Christian ball players, after one of the games, kind of stick around with some fans and kind of talk to them one-on-one and whatnot. It's a YouTube video. You can go watch it yourself. But the San Jose Mercury News, that beacon of light, uh, ran... <laughs> tongue-in-cheek, ran an article on Brian Wilson. And if you've noticed this, I've been watching him do this for, for a couple of weeks now, but he turns and he gives this sign after he closes out a game. He turns back towards center field. And the Mercury News ran this article, and Brian Wilson said this. He said, I'll tell you why I do that. This guy had been badgering him for a while. Why do you do that? Other teams think you're taunting them. He said, I'll tell you in, in due time. I'm not sure when I want to reveal it. But if I reveal it, it's on my terms. You will print what I say. That's the only way I'll do this. Let me read from the San Jose Mercury News. Brian Wilson said, One of the things I do after a game is the crossing of the arms. When I cross my arms, I have my left hand in, in the fist and my right hand goes underneath pointing with my index finger. This finger represents one man. I'm that person. And I can only go so far in life leaning on my own understanding and my own strength. The fist represents the power of the Holy Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. The fist is symbolic of a circle. It's never ending. This strength will continue to grow. So here's the strength of God and the strength of one man. And without Him, I am nothing. I can only go so far in this life. But when I cross, I now have this one person with the strength of Christ, and I can do anything through Christ who strengthens me. I can get over any battle in life. So basically, I give respect to the ultimate fighting world, and I, give, and I also give respect to Christ, the audience of one that I play for. I don't play for anything else. I play to impress him and only him. And I must honor him through defeat and also through successes. Because I wouldn't be here today if it weren't for the strength that he gives me. Talent only goes so far. Isn't that cool? I told Becky last night, I said, I think I have a brand new favorite baseball player. <laughs> And here's the thing. Fear the beard? Nothing. Fear the king. I mean, that's what he's saying. And what a, what a great perspective. You know when he got saved? You know when he gave his life over to Christ? 2005. His father passed away when he was 17. He went off and tried to live life on his own. Saw some guys playing cards one night. Always heard about church. Thought it was very confusing. Thought that God must have turned his back on him. It's an amazing testimony. And he's bold about it. I conclude with this. This is where God and I intersect. I love that cross that he does with his arms. Because that's the picture. The Bible talks about how the supernatural and the divine and the holy intersect with one frail life. That's a little whisper of smoke in the grand scheme of things. Verse 22 
that God gave him, Jesus, over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This passage didn't talk a ton about it, so we're not going to talk a ton about it. But in your notes, I have what Pastor Jesus is doing. We say this from the front often. We have one senior pastor here. His name is Jesus Christ. He's the one who's in control of this church. He's the one who's guiding this church. He's the one who's leading this church. He's the one who forgave and purchased this church. It's his land. It's his building. We're his people. He's the pastor. He's the king. We're under shepherds. What is Jesus doing on the throne? That's a great question. One of the guys at Paul Moore Park said, I think he might be on vacation. I heard that sentiment from a guy in a coffee shop this week. Profaning the name of God, saying, God must be a classic underachiever if the world is the way that it is. So what has he been doing for 2,000 years? You ever pray this prayer? God, where are you? Jesus... Where are you? It's all through the Psalms. Feel free to pray that. Jesus is ruling and Jesus is functioning as our high priest and head of the church. And I take great comfort in that. Hebrews 7 says he's making intercession for the saints. He's guiding and building his church, which is the body. And he's preparing and refining a people and a place. Remember this? I go to prepare a place. And he's refining a people for himself as the author and finisher or perfecter of our faith. I was talking about the books that... Uh, someone asked me about some books I, I read this week and I began to share about my wife. Hey, what does, Be- hey, what does Becky read? I said, you know, here's what Becky reads most often because it's most near and dear to her heart is she reads a lot of blogs about adoption, needs in the world, people who are in the game, what can be prayed about, what can be talked about. And I told her, I said, I I would love it if you just forward me once in a while some, some of the more powerful stories that are out there. And I read this from a blog this week. Someone asked them, how come you're doing these different things? Why are you out there uh, doing these things with kids? I mean, we all feel bad for them, but, you know, you're up turning your whole life for this. This person wrote this. It's not about trying to be a savior. We already have one of those. Don't you love that? His name is Jesus. Here's what I love so much about it, though. Here's the name of the blog. No hands but ours. No hands but ours. As the church, we're the body of Jesus Christ. And so as we leave this morning, here's what I want to challenge you with. If Jesus isn't the head of a building or the head of a program, but he revealed it to us that he's the head of a body. There's a lot of implications to that, but let me leave you with just three. One, as the body gives glory to the head by manifesting what comes from it, So the church does for Jesus. So as you see Jesus in his physical self, he had a physical head and a physical body manifested, showed off what was going on in the head. Does that make sense? That's true in our life too, in a physical sense. Well, now in a spiritual sense, he is the spiritual head of the spiritual body, which is the church, which are real tangible people with real tangible body parts. So as you see things about Jesus Christ, as they're revealed to you in Scripture, 
You're to show those off. You're to manifest those. You're to reveal those in your physical self. Number two, the church is the continuing incarnation of Jesus. Incarnation just means that God was with us in bodily form, in the flesh. And now the church is the continuing, ongoing incarnation in this location, in your home, in your neighborhood, at your cubicle. That's what the church is. So catch this. Whatever Jesus would do, the church must do. What would Jesus do is a great starting question, right? The action point, though, is that the church must do whatever Jesus would do. That means we need to learn to listen to the Spirit of Christ who dwells in us, who sealed us, who guides and prompts us. We need to test the spirits, as 1 John talks about, because not every gut thing is from the Lord, is it? And He's revealed Himself most clearly in the Scripture, so you better be in the Word. And as you hear things, as you read things, the Holy Spirit will confirm that that is a truth or confirm that that is a lie. And you know what? He does that with people too. I pray before I meet people, before I'm about to make a decision, I share this with you often, but it's the only way I know how to live. God, would you just confirm in my heart if this is from you? And if it's not, I, I want to run from it. I don't want anything to do with it. Finally, the church is the instrument for God's Spirit to act and move. Sinful as she may be, she must be the hands and feet of Jesus in this age until He returns. There is no other plan. Period. There's no other plan. You can tell because of the place I'm standing right now on a Sunday morning that I believe in and, uh, and am behind and think that this is a massive thing that the, the community needs. And that is the local neighborhood church. I came from a massive church that's doing incredible things for the kingdom of God. And this isn't a, this isn't a statement against the massive church. But let me just say this. We don't need just a couple of worship centers that are massive, throng, institutional kinds of things. God has allowed the church of San Jose to consist of very large congregations who do things on a large scale and have the power to really unite a lot of churches. He also is moving in house churches, in churches with no building. We've said this time and again, and maybe the Lord will test us on it. Maybe some of you want me to stop saying this, but I'm going to say it anyways. The building could burn down tonight. Would Neighborhood Bible Church go away? No way. I mean, we're the church. It's the people here. So every time we walk the neighborhood, we're, we're, we're being incarnational in this neighborhood. As we grow a garden back here and we get, to, we get to pick organic, beautiful produce and hand it to someone who's in need of a simple, healthy meal... We do so in the name of Jesus Christ. We do so and we just say, this is what the, 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 the church is about. And the way Jesus did it was he took the natural and he just began to move it towards the spiritual. You know that hunger you feel for organic lettuce? It's going to come again. You know that hunger you feel in your soul? There's someone who can fill that. His name is Jesus. Can I tell you about him? Dan, would you come on up? We're going to close with a couple of songs and with an, a time of offering. Let me paint a clear picture for you. Us singing this morning, 
the greeting time that went on, the time of giving to the Lord our first fruits, as it were, in tithing, the words and thoughts and mental images that come up about Christ as we sing words of adoration to Him, and the meal that we're about to enjoy as we look across the table at someone that God has created in His own image. This is worship. This is worship. We didn't have a worship time. Now we're going to have a speaking time. Now we're going to have a giving time. Now some more worship and then an eating time. We're here to worship the risen Jesus Christ this morning. So as we sing some more, as we offer this morning, as we enjoy a simple meal inside of a warm building, not in the rain, can you give praise to God? Can you let the way that you treat your brother or sister who you can see be a reflection of the love of God that you have for someone you can't see? That's 1 John. Let's pray. Jesus, we are excited right now to worship you as you sit on your throne, rightfully so, at the right hand of God the Father. Amen.